This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hi, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson, the Program Director of the Online Graduate Certificate, Master of Science, and PhD in Palliative Care. And we're recording this podcast series for use not only in our PhD program, but as our part of our Palliative Care Chat podcast series. Uh, I'm here with Connie Dolan, who is faculty in both the master's and the PhD. And we are so excited about our guest today. I am just over the moon excited. This was one of my moonshot uh, interviews, I would say. I thought, boy, what, what are the chances? Um, but being just a lovely person, Professor Higginson agreed to do this. So we're very excited. She is a physician. She is currently professor of palliative care and policy and vice dean of research in the Florence Nightingale Faculty of Nursing, Midwifery, and Palliative Care, and, and this really gets me going here, director of the Cicely Saunders Institute at King's College in London. She is absolutely has had an international impact in the development of hospice and palliative care. I have heard her name my entire career, and I am fangirling on Dr. Higginson here. So, Connie, I'm going to turn it over to you. So um, very excited with this interview, and I think um, of your breadth. And so I think, you know, Professor Higginson, I would love for you to kind of talk about, um, you know, hospice development in England and your involvement and, and then sort of, you know, it coming to America and your thoughts about that. Okay, well, first of all, um, thank you so much for inviting me to be on this interview. Uh, and, and I'm just going to slightly adjust my camera because it's kind of wiggling around a little bit um, so it doesn't fall over. But to say thank you very much for inviting me to the interview. And it's a pleasure to be with you and your colleagues and, and your students and faculty. And I hope it's helpful. So, so let's go back a little while. Um, so um, I, I trained in medicine. Um, I always felt slightly dissatisfied with medicine when I'd seen death handled. I wasn't that keen on it. And I, and I stumbled over palliative care by accident. I was interested in public health medicine. I was training in public health medicine and I saw a job advertised that was half um, palliative care and half public health medicine. And the palliative care was working closely with radiotherapy and oncology at University College Hospital in London. And, and I was a bit put off by palliative care but I went and found a book in the library because I was a curious sort of soul and I read um, a book by one Cicely Saunders <laughs> and uh, called Terminal Care in, uh, in, in Cancer. And I thought, my goodness, this is what I've been missing in medicine. So I went along and I met the Bloomsbury Palliative Care team uh, which was in a little sort of um, a very lowly office at the back of the of one of the slightly disused hospitals, you might say, which is where palliative care teams often are, or were in those days especially. And when I met the team, I thought, wow, this is fantastic because first of all, they're putting the person first and that's always what I was looking for in medicine. Secondly, they're concerned about everything, the body and the mind together. And, and thirdly, 
it's more equal between nurses and physicians and others. And everybody has an important perspective in the team and it's more holistic. And I just thought, gosh, okay, I'll do this job. I think this is something I want to learn about. So I did the job. And, and while I did that job, I, I met um, a very influential person of mine called James Hanratty, who used to be the medical director of uh, St. Joseph's Hospice in London. Mm-hmm. He um, uh, had worked very closely with Cicely Saunders and, and he had a, a brilliant knack of looking for people who might care about palliative care and attracting them to it. And he came up to me and said, well, it's all very well you doing what you're doing and it's very important and very interesting, but you better come and work in a hospice. So come and work for me in St. Joseph's Hospice and we'll really, you know, tell you what it's about. Why don't you just come and work for me for a bit? So I did. Um, uh, and I went and worked for him and I, and I was a little nervous. I was thinking I'd have to be, become very religious or all sorts of other things. And I didn't. And I went and worked in St. Joseph's Hospice in the inpatient unit and also working with the community unit and, um, and I learned such a lot and it was great fun. Um, and so I just decided that this was something I really cared about. At those days, it wasn't easy to get a proper training in medicine because um, although palliative medicine had been recognized, it was recognized in a spe- as a specialty within medicine in the UK in 1987, at the same time as the year the journal um, Palliative Medicine was launched, there weren't really training programs. So even though it was at that time uh, officially a specialty, what was happening is that people who were already working in, in, in hospices were being recognized in that and you couldn't actually go and get a proper training. There wasn't a sort of four year training program as there is now. So, um, so you kind of had to make up your own training program. So I kind of made up my own training program then working with uh, back with the Bloomsbury palliative care team and in the community and also working in public health medicine. So I got a dual accreditation in both public health medicine and palliative medicine by doing a slightly extended training period and also by doing a PhD. Um, And I decided then that I was kind of very interested in trying to get more knowledge for palliative care because I could see that we were struggling. So that's kind of how I started. Um, I I worked later also at St. Christopher's Hospice. So I worked there with Cicely um, for a period. And then working with Cicely, actually, we had the idea to create an institute in Cicely's name. And my vision for that is that palliative care needed to move beyond a single individual being the important person and the founder, couldn't rely on one person anymore. And what we needed to do was to create a whole cadre of people who would move in this and what better than to use Cicely's name for that. And Cicely was all up for that. She thought it was a a good idea. She'd initially been a little cautious, but we persuaded her that that was a good thing to do. So it was with her blessing that we started work and her engagement and enthusiasm and hard work. And I had the privilege of working alongside Cicely for many years and I I learned a great deal from her then later on, having spent early time in my career, spending many years uh, working alongside James Hanratty, who incidentally told me, and I I believe him, that he was the one who introduced the battery operated syringe driver 
to community care and St Christopher's Hospice and pain management and I believe him and I also had the privilege of working alongside um, Vittorio Ventafrida in uh, in Italy who was the founder of the um, uh, sort of EAPC really and he and I worked together on quite a lot of European guidance uh, and so on and again uh, it was a great privilege of, of working alongside these huge founders mm -hmm. and latterly um, with Mary Baines who did so much on home care uh, at St Christopher's Hospice and she gave us a great deal of advice and support as we first formed the Cicely Saunders Institute and um, came to all of our seminars and lectures and told me things that I should and shouldn't be doing, which was great because it was like having Cicely tell me what I should and shouldn't be doing, which was just fantastic. So I think I've been very lucky to have worked with some amazing individuals and some amazing women who've ha had real leadership in, in this field. And I've learned a lot uh, from them. Wow. Can I interject a question here? Was it your vision right from the start that the Institute would be a degree granting institution? So we were, so my view was yes, uh, I think is the shorter answer. I mean, my view was that it was time for hospice to move back into university and hospital trust. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the picture behind me, uh, this is actually King's College Hospital in London. And immediately behind my head is the accident and emergency department. And if I move around, you can probably see the ambulances lined up outside the building. Um, down in the bottom corner, just underneath where King's College London is, is where the Cicely Saunders Institute is located. Wow. And if you move across um, off the screen to um, your uh, left, um, uh, then what you can see there is where the university buildings would be. So the Cicely Saunders Institute actually on this campus is actually at the kind of elbow point, if you know what I mean, of hospital and university, and there we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's brilliant because for us. So we have clinical and academic, we have research, education, and clinical services. So we have um, the clinical palliative care team there. And one of the things when I moved into my role at, at, at King's, which was a joint academic and clinical role, is that there was no clinical palliative care service either in the hospital. So one of the things I did was about not only building up an academic department, but building up a clinical service that we could establish. Because I really didn't want to be heading a brilliant academic service with no clinical activity going on um, and working very closely with our local hospices including St Christopher's and Trinity um, to the south and St Joseph's to the northeast. Um, the, uh, and, and the idea that there, it would be degree awarding then was part of that because I felt that it was very difficult for independent hospices on their own to um, undertake research and to do um, uh, uh, degrees. And in a way for palliative care to be considered properly, it needed to fit within that university structure. So my first target when I was appointed as professor um, at King's in this, before we'd even planned the Institute really was to create a, a master's program. 
Okay. And we did that even before we built the Institute. To be honest, it was always my vision to create an institute, although originally we didn't plan a physical building, but nobody would give us money for the original plan. So we sort of honed them down to a physical building. We wanted a network initially, but nobody would give us money for a network. So we created a physical building in the end. Um, and we, we were helped actually by help the hospices to pump prime um, a, a master's uh, program in palliative care. And it was really due to their generous support that we were able to create a master's program. And when did that start your master's program? Uh, that started in 1997. Wow, wow, that's amazing. That's freaking amazing. Wow. Well, I think also just, you know, thinking that the evolution of where you all went pretty quickly to, to education and recognizing how it needed to be part of a university. Yeah. Right. And I think one of the things, well, one of the things we heard from, from uh, Professor Clark was uh, this interesting dilemma of where hospices are now because they were sort of charity driven. Um, and so what some of that is, and so you're kind of speaking to the need to have this palliative care institute to kind of help keep the practice going. But I think the other part of that in my mind is when we still think forward about the specialty, um, how do we keep moving forward um, in, get, in understanding that it is a specialty practice, because I think there's this part of like trying to integrate it as all care, but then knowing it's a specialty care and that we're wanting to have people with masters and PhDs. Um, so just kind of that sense of, you know, moving forward to, to that, that duality. Any thoughts about that? Mm. First of all, I should correct myself. I think it was, it was actually 19... 98 when we started it we started planning in 1997 but we didn't get it approved so I think it was 1998 when we first had it and it and it's great that we're you know in touch with many alumni who came off the master's program so I mean I think your question is a really interesting one about the balance so I think that in a way for me it's the needs of patients and families that always come first mm -hmm. And the boundaries of specialty versus non-specialty is a little bit drawn by the way in which we organize how we organize healthcare and our folk in healthcare. My view is though that unless you have expertise and you have people who dedicate time and energy to it, it doesn't move, it doesn't move forward. And you know we need to move forward because there's so many things that we don't do well enough for our patients and families. We have symptoms that we don't manage that well and could do more for. We have, you know, even in pain, which is our most research symptom and our most ably managed symptom, I would say. Even in that, we have the challenge of people with neuropathic pain, people who don't respond very well to opioids, the challenge of opioid switching, et cetera. Even in that, we have challenges. And then if you move into symptoms that I'm interested in, like breathlessness, there's even less research. And, but we've got huge opportunities in breathlessness because we've got a wonderful cadre of, of non-pharmacological treatments. Then you think of the mind-body interface and you think of how do complicated things like advanced care planning work on an individual basis across different cultures and different ways of being. And you, you, know, you can't get then 
to a, a very simplified system of just applying things without expertise. If you think of um, outcome measurement, so how do we know we're doing a good job? You know, it, it, the standard outcome measures never worked for us. And unless we had a field of people who were working on this and who were thinking about it and who understood palliative care, one of my passions, we'd still be in the, the dark ages of trying to measure everything with mortality, which you know is a very crude indicator for palliative care and, and doesn't really help us um, that much because it's a kind of universal thing and we're interested much more in quality of life but the standard quality of life developed for the chemotherapy trials and studies doesn't necessarily apply to our field because many of those measures are very focused on the side effects of chemotherapy drugs and on functional status so Unless you have a, a specialism and an interest in that and people who develop specialist knowledge because they see these problems all the time, you will not be able to deal with the complex cases. Now, where the boundaries lie between generalism and specialism, I think is a moot point. And in some ways, what I'd say is, well, what do the patients feel that they want? What do they want in terms of how expert a person is? Why can't we have more patient determination over what they see? Because in many ways, sort of palliativists are actually often very good generalists in general nursing, general medicine, general care, as well as their specialist knowledge of kind of advanced illness and uh, complex symptom management. Um, and in some ways, they can work in partnership. So you wouldn't in maternal care start having these arguments. So why are we doing it in palliative care? It's a really interesting thought um, because I, and, and I wonder if it's a little bit of, you know, does it have to do with our payment system? Because as you know, in the United States, we, for better, for worse, and we've sort of heard it was a compact with the devil of the hospice ben Medicare benefit. And, and that has really been a focus about why we do things of this distinction between hospice and palliative care, right, of this whole payment. Um, and even to your point about outcomes of, you know, what are the appropriate outcomes for, for patients with uh, serious illness, knowing that everybody will probably have one because that's how they'll die. Um, but also the intensity that's needed for it, um, you know, of thinking about how do we accomplish that. So I wonder, you know, if there's certain areas that you feel like we do need to focus more specifically in outcomes or in understanding what it is we do or the work that we do. Oh, well, I, I, I do feel we need to look at that. I mean, I, you know, the, pro the problem with palliative care and hospice care, and you have to apologize, uh, or I have to apologize to you because I'm British. So in the British context, and I think in many other countries, there is not the distinction that you right. would see in America. Right, right. between hospice and and palliative care so i i do i do i, I do i have learned over the years to speak your language <laughs> so um I'll, I'll try and and put my comments into your language in a way but you know what i would say is that in the us you have this um separation which is driven by the funding mechanisms. There's no doubt about that and the structures of healthcare that you have and all, all healthcare systems are driven by the funding mechanisms. It's not a judgment, it's just a fact. Um, uh, which, which means that what hospice is in the US and what hospice is, is in the UK is not, is not 
exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think what palliative care is in the US though, is more similar to what palliative care and hospice is in the UK. But the difference in the UK is that hospice often refers to voluntary managed units, although we do have NHS managed units that operate with a specific philosophy, which is very similar to the US philosophy. And we can all talk the same language to each other because we all are driven by the same sorts of principles, but we do have slightly different nuances and ways in which we organize things. And, you know, there is a slightly different emphasis. So UK hospice has more medical input, I would say, in general, than US hospice. Um, and, and we do treatments differently, some of which is driven by our funding mechanisms. So, I mean, it may have changed now, but I've been shocked uh, in the US if I see people with bone metastases. And in the UK, you would give them a single shot of radiotherapy because we know that that's effective as multiple shots and nobody would bat an eyelid and they'd go from an inpatient hospice to go and get it and come back and they wouldn't need to go again. Whereas in the US, I think they still still quite often have to have multiple shots. We would use bisphosphonates as routine for the pr prevention of bone metastases. There's very good evidence for that. That's Cochrane Review level evidence. We wouldn't be saying, well, it's not within our hospice budget to do that because we have the GP budgets to do that you wouldn't do that but if you go to on call out of hours care i've been so impressed in the us that you have a single call system and there isn't a business that a patient can not have a home care nurse or a home help person it comes from one agency whereas in the uk when you're out of hours you're scrabbling around a whole often a whole bunch of different persons and peoples to try and get somebody to sit with the patient because the fragmentation of these different systems working together that you have in a way better in the US with a single payment system than you have in the UK with multiple different agencies looking after people in the home. We're trying to get around that locally with a pallet home service in, in South London and run by um, a hospital just up the road from us guys in St. Thomas's where they have a pallet home service and home care services like St. Christopher's also try and get round that with their sort of uh, more comprehensive offerings. But it's, it's where I might admire the US system because you have it all in one lump. So I, I, I've seen the pros and cons across it in all ways. So I might have drifted slightly off. Your no, no, I think you, there, you answered I'm exactly. Sorry that. I think, I mean, I think that's the interesting part because I do feel like um, knowing that, and um, I was one of the early people who did Michael Galazka's course on visiting England. So really got a big vision of that. And I know you were good friends with him, but um, I think that's the other piece too, that when in England you have hospice and palliative care and it's kind of seen as a specialty and um, you need to know a lot. And I think what's happened here is, you know, palliative care is academic, hospice is not. We have people going into hospice with a no background who get very little training to do the hospice part. And so then you also see a disparity of some of the decision-making, right? It becomes this sort of one stop, here's what you do because people are dying rather than thinking about what their diagnosis is and what some other family is. Um, and so it's, it's an interesting place about thinking about what your even expectations are for decision-making that goes on in between the two. 
Um, and so I think that's important, I think, for, um, you know, for our students to be thinking of the future of, of elevating it and keeping it across. And I think the other part of these international expectations, if you will, of, you know, palliative care being both specialist and, um, um, you know, generalizable, you know, to our colleagues. Um, so I, you know, but, but I don't see why we have such um, such difficult discussions about it. In a way, I can understand in one way why they're dif difficult. But you don't say. I mean, if you you, you don't say, well, we don't need um, uh, clinicians who are expert in diabetes just because it's actually a core part of what a lot of um, doctors and nurses do. We right. still say, well, we need people who have expertise in it. We don't say, oh, well, we don't need people who have expertise in birth just because we have a lot of people who have a basic knowledge in quite a lot of it. And the idea of maternal care, which is shared, is not an un, un, uh, un inappropriate idea. I think we, 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 in a way, in palliative care, we should stop apologizing for it. Mm. And um, I personally think, and, uh, and I've come to this view over the years, that it was very helpful in the UK for my predecessors, and I'd lay a great tribute to experts like um, Baroness Elora Finlay, and if you could get her to talk to you, and you should try, because I think she would, then that would be fantastic. But pioneers like her creating a, um, a, a medical uh, specialty, because she was one of the pioneers that made it happen. She came into palliative care from a general practice background, which I do feel was a very important thing because the community angle is important. Um, uh, and there was a period in the UK where it did drift a little bit too, too, too hospitally in my view, but it's coming back to the community and anyone training now in palliative medicine, the medical training has to do a period of time in the community as well as in the hospitals. I think it was a very good move for the UK that um, there was a, a specialism created. I think the important thing was to have to offer a number of routes through it, because it's only by having that can you get um, uh, physicians wanting to work in the area uh, and to develop in it and so on. Um, I think that the specialism for nursing and for allied health professionals has come behind a little more slowly. Um, you'd have to talk to nurses and um, allied health professionals about how clear that training is but we certainly have leadership within those fields of people who are trying to create and ensure that there is an appropriate training and development and so on in 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 those areas which i think is also good and then you have the um, health services researchers and the applied health researchers who have also now developed an expertise in this and goodness thank goodness we have also some health economists who have an interest and an expertise in this field and that's so helpful for us because the standard health economic measures like qualies and and the standard health status measures like eq5d are very problematic in our field and if you just applied them 
um, um, unrobustly to what we do. It would just look like what we do is a is a, a waste of economy for healthcare, at least in the British system. I know in the American system you don't use qualies, so that may be another bonus for you. Well, but you know we have economists and we have um, you know people who handle big data and trialists even now. So at at King's now, I'm very proud that I have created a new clinical trials unit called the Nightingale Saunders unit, honoring Florence Nightingale, who after all was both a mathematician and a nurse, and Cicely Saunders, who was a nurse, a physician and a social worker in one. So these multi-professional people. And it's the Nightingale Saunders complex clinical trials unit with trialists and statisticians interested in how you do the complex trials that relate to our sorts of populations across palliative care and also other complex illnesses and nursing and midwifery. So what, switching a little bit, I mean, you've been so involved with all of that and, and the European part, what do you think are some of the challenges both internationally for palliative care as we move to both, uh, to a lot of um, developing countries, or some of the areas we just haven't focused on yet and and probably need to start focusing on a bit. You've mentioned a little bit with the ec economics and some of the clinical trials, but you know, in terms of thinking of this, what are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I think one of the important things that palliative care has done is it's embraced the world beyond cancer. Mm -hmm. And the next step in that is to embrace the multimorbidities, uh, be that in children or adults. And we should remember that um, <coughs> health in children is, is very important. So, so my view is always that we should respond to what people need in society and also what healthcare systems and practitioners need. So where are we going with healthcare? This we've seen uh, a pandemic uh, just recently with uh, a need for people um, who have been very ill and dying in a very different way in, um, in people dying of COVID. Um, uh, and we may see issues of long COVID and, and multimorbidity, which may come to the fore in the future. So we really do need to be able to respond and use our expertise in complex, serious and progressive illnesses and holistic care for people and their families for these other conditions. And we're a bit thin on the ground to be able to do that well, but we have to try and we have to look to the resources to do that. When you look um, uh, globally, I mean, if you look at the projections of the global need, and there's a very good paper published by Catherine Sleeman on this in the Lancet Global Health, you can see a massive increase in the need for palliative care if you look at the population projections, and we are woefully short. So a big challenge for us is to respond to the great need which we're not even meeting now and which is going to increase in the future. And I, and I do think that that's where institutes such as our own have a role in highlighting that this gap exists because without our work, nobody would know that the gap was there. Uh, and also highlighting, um, <coughs> you know, and finding effective and cost-effective solutions. So ways in which you can do things effectively taking advantage of technology, remote support, consultation, 
ways to help people develop their own ability to self-manage symptoms. And in some ways, the boundaries, in my view, between the treatments that we used to consider as curative, but are probably not, and are potentially life extending or possibly life enhancing and palliative, those boundaries in the newer multimorbid populations that, that is what most people are, is an important thing to think about how we adjust our services and our interventions to help that. I do see a big role for greater integration of um, uh, rehabilitation within palliative care, not rehabilitation in the old definition of the word, um, i.e. rehabilitation to restore function back to normal, because in this context, that's not practical, but rehabilitation to prevent for or to slow um, deterioration in functioning for people so that people are able to do as much as possible. So there's some lovely simple research, for example, that shows that <clears throat> in people with breathlessness and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and heart disease, if you teach people to pace themselves so they don't sort of rush and they go more slowly, they actually start to walk further and get fitter. It's such a simple intervention, isn't it? It's like the work that Eduardo Bruera did, that actually, if you just sit down with a patient, even if you spend exactly the same amount of time with them, they're more satisfied with what you do. And I think that these, what I would call frugal innovations and appropriate interventions is where palliative care has always been. And it's why we need the leadership in the field. So, um, I mean, one of the pieces of work that we've done that is, will be, is coming out in, in, in press, I think it might even be out, is about some of the frugal innovations that were generated do during the COVID pandemic, where services were very stretched. Um, and actually many uh, more resource poor countries um, actually have an extremely good uh, ability at seeking frugal innovations. And my colleague, for example, Richard Harding, who's leading a lot of the global work, is very interested in kind of South-North learning. So we learn from places that are doing this. So, uh, I mean, we have a massive, massive challenge ahead. We have to work together, we have to support each other, and we have to grow capacity to be able to respond to it. But I think the more that we can work together, and I think that's one of the things I love about the people who work in palliative and hospice care is that they do work together. The more that we can work together to drive this and not, and accept that there are a number of arms of work that need to be done, the better it will be. Absolutely. So you have a 25th anniversary coming up for your institute. Yes, we do actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were going to have a 10th anniversary coming up for the for the Institute itself, because the Institute formally opened in 2010. Oh, when, okay. uh, Her Royal Highness Princess Anne opened the physical building. Uh -huh. um, and, and so the year 2020 was going to be a big year of celebrations, mm -hmm. um, as it was going to be the year of the nurse as well. 
Um, and uh, both of those completely got destroyed by COVID. Um, but actually your point about 25 years is a nice one. So I'm gonna um, borrow that because I hadn't really thought about that. So Absolutely. thank you very much. I was doing the math. I was thinking, well, maybe by the 25th anniversary, the COVID will be gone and I can go to London and visit Dr. Higginson. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Well, that would be very nice. Um, I'd like that too. Tell me about your PhD program. Obviously, we're very interested okay. in the amazing success. You've had our programs 20 minutes old, so uh, we are like the little engine that could compared to you. So please tell me a little bit about that. So um, it came out of the, um, the, the um, MSc program. So it was always the plan that the MSc program would lead to enabling people to go on and do PhDs. And we have had a few people, uh, including Richard Harding, who was one of our first PhD students, um, who um, uh, actually didn't do the MSc because he already had one, but went straight into a PhD program. But we've got it more clearly aligned now. So it works within King's College London. It's a specific program where we take people um, with interests in, in palliative care. We have a number of topics that we're particularly interested in recruiting people on the website. We're also very interested in working with people to get fellowships. Um, individuals who come on the program have the opportunity to attend a couple of the modules on the MSc program if they haven't done the program already. And we're very interested in also people who've done our MSc program going on to do PhDs. Sure. We take people full-time and part-time and we take people from across the world. So we have a, and, and we've now developed, and, and they have, the PhD students have their own little peer review group mm -hmm. where they meet together and discuss things and agree things. Um, obviously since COVID um, and even before that, because some of them go back to their own countries, they've been doing it in country. It's, it, we take advantage of and use the structures of King's College London, which means that there's a lot of transferable skills training that people can get access to. So how to do presentations, how to do literature searches, how to do all those sorts of things. And then we take people on a wide range of subjects that we can take. So people from allied health professionals who are doing it more in the sort of rehabilitation palliative care space, people who are working on specific symptom management, so pain or breathlessness or whatever, people who are interested in the economics, have done PhDs in the economics, and I found, we found co-supervisors who are health economists, um, uh, people who are working on large data sets, but most of them are working on the Kind of either clinical or applied health research areas of, um, of palliative care. Um, and often we link these to projects that we've already got funding for. So, I mean, we're part of the university. We rely on, on two sources of funding, primarily philanthropy. So, and, and philanthropy has made the big difference to us. Um, without philanthropy, we wouldn't have had the Institute or the building. And I'm very, very grateful to the donors who helped that and who supported that vision. And, and also um, uh, specific research grants from research bond funding bodies like the National Institutes of Health Research or from charities. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, those are our two main funding and survival sources. So we try to make the PhD programs align with something that we're already doing. So it has a bit of momentum and has energy. And I'm worried that we had lots of money for fellowships. We occasionally get donors who give us money for fellowships, but otherwise we don't. Yeah. 
both your master's and PhD are face-to-face -face education or is it distance? So we're moving to distance. Um, the, at the moment, um, the PhD <coughs> requirement is that the person has to spend six months with us in country out of the period of the PhD. And we're working with the university to change that so it could be more completely online. Mm -hmm. So we're very keen to go there. The master's is becoming a blended and hybrid program, partly because of COVID, but we were also moving in that direction. And we've actually got a project running at the moment to kind of take views from individuals to try and understand the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's pros and cons, and there are some things that are easier to teach that way, and some things that are particularly more skills orientated that are, are a little bit easier to do in a face-to-face -face way. Mm -hmm. It also speaks to if somebody wants clinical and they haven't had it, like you do want to be able to offer them some sort of clinical experience because I think one of the challenges is when you do a distance and you have people try to find their own clinical placement where they are, they may not be exposed to somebody who, you know, who's expert enough to teach them anything. You know, I think so that's been something I, I just noticed in terms of um, what you can do is skills and role playing via zoom is very different than being in person but yet the flip side of that in which you mentioned is you know because of covid um all of us had to pivot and use you know telehealth and and so where is that going to be with palliative care because we love that in-person connection and yet when you think about health equity and all that it has a huge role yeah so, uh, so um, I mean, my view is that it needs evaluation to understand what, what is good and what isn't good, and it may need supporting mechanisms um, uh, to, to put things in place. Um, <coughs> and, and as you say, there are uh, pros. So, so, I mean, both in terms of the, both in terms of the interface directly with patients, and also in terms of the interface um, uh, between clinicians and then in terms of the interface in teaching. Those different angles all need um, an assessment and appraisal of the best way of, of, of doing things. So um, in, in, the, in the patient clinician business, um, uh, we're, we're actually turning one of our interventions of a breathlessness support service into a patient self-help pack. I've got a, um, a colleague that I'm working with, Charlie Riley, who's leading on that work, supported by a fellowship from the National Institutes of Health Research. And, and, he, and, and, and there's all sorts of interesting things to think about there, like acceptability of the kit for patients and families, what they're willing to have in the home, how they feel about it, how they feel about using it, all of which has changed during COVID. Um, and then you've got other people doing work like um, Project Echo that is being led from Hospice UK, where you've got support going into care homes, where you've got discussions and remote kind of ward rounds about patients. Um, and then you've got direct face-to-face -face, um, education, which is not in-person education, but is kind of like the conversation that we're having now. And, and you know, your interview... Um, uh, two years ago would not have been so easy, would it? No, no, you're right. Well, even just the acceptability. I mean, you know, I, yeah. I've been a face-to-face -face person and I was trying to get people to do video calls instead of phone calls because you just couldn't read your team. And there was such resistance. And now the other day, you know, I had a 
somebody wanted to be in contact with me and I'm like, do you want to use a phone or video? And they're like, why would I want to call you? I want to see you. And I'm like, that is so funny because she was one of the people who was the most resistant. So it was kind of funny. Now I'm a bit conscious of time. So I'm going to have to leave you in a mo, I'm afraid. So one last question, any advice for our students coming into the PhD program to best take advantage of this educational opportunity with an eye toward the future? Oh, wow. So um, do something that you enjoy, that you're interested in, because um, a PhD is a longish relationship uh, to get it, uh, get it finished. So have an eye to finishing the thing. It'll never be the most perfect piece of work on earth. And I think the advice I give my students most is, is, is try and take it in a staged way. Do remember that and certainly this has happened to me, you get interested in what you're working on sometimes. So, I mean, don't do something that really doesn't interest you at all, but sometimes you can find interesting things in something that didn't completely interest you at the first. And I do think it's important to have supervisors who are interested and enthusiastic about the subject. So supervisors choose a good place. I'm sure your place is a wonderful place. So that's good. And, um, and then it's about, I think, taking it in stages and trying not to be too ambitious. <laughs> um, the biggest mistake that in my experience people make on a PhD is that they want to solve the whole world and they think, oh, I've got three years, I can solve every problem that's needed. And actually what you probably need to do is, is choose a specific focused ish- issue and, and try and make progress with that and not try and do everything, but try and make a significant contribution in a specific area. And enjoy the journey, because I think it's the one time in your life when you really are allowed to work primarily on one thing, and all the rest of your life, you have to be working on multiple things. So enjoy the journey. Oh, that's wonderful advice. Thank you so much. Well, Professor- Thank you. Good luck with your program. All righty. Thank you so much. All right. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.